0: Ideally, uh, during the sabbatical, while uh, our our vocational elder Lee is gone, it'd be nice if all the other elders could take a turn, like you know, Harvey one week, then James and Tom, you know. That. But just quite frankly, our schedules didn't work out this way. So uh, rather than have this nice rotation, there's a different guy every week. You got me again. So I know it's been 2 it's only been two weeks since I've been in the pulpit, but I'm back again. But we, I promise you, we all are going to have equal share up here uh, our different times. Um, but I, I'm happy. I'm happy to be back again. So two weeks ago, I had actually made the case. I had preached an overview sermon on the book of Philippians. And I said that a good way to understand the whole of Paul's letter to the Philippians, okay, was that since Christians were partnering with the gospel or participating in the gospel, he says this in different ways throughout the book, uh, they should walk worthy of the gospel. Okay, and what all that basically means is the following, is that since they are in Christ, and since they have been changed by Christ, and since they have this fellowship with one another through Christ, their lives should reflect it. Okay, not the other way around. It's like, okay, make your lives, try to reflect it. No, your lives already actually have this reality within it. Walk in accordance with it, okay? Now, the situation Paul finds himself in when he wrote this letter, though, was that he was actually sitting in a jail, okay, or he was sitting in imprisonment in Rome. More than likely, he was under house arrest. So he was imprisoned, but probably not in a jail per se. And the Philippian church, which he'd planted several years before, this is in Acts 16 where you can see that, was several hundred miles away from where he was. But when the Philippians heard about Paul's situation, that he was in jail, okay, they sent Epaphroditus, and you can see this, we'll see this later in the book in uh, uh, Philippians 4.18. They sent Epaphroditus to him along with evidently some financial gifts for his needs, okay? So when you're under house arrest, my understanding was if you're in jail, I guess you get bread and water. But if you're under house arrest, you had to take care of your own needs. And so Paul needed help while he was under house arrest. So last week, Harvey started us out actually in the book, starting us out in chapter 1 of Philippians. And we saw there, he highlighted that the Philippian believers had this love for one another, which sprang from a good conscience in Christ. Which again, I think is just another way to say they were participating in the gospel. They were partners in the gospel. And this good conscience in Christ produced these good works, namely showing their love to Paul by sending Epaphroditus and these gifts. And you can imagine the encouragement Paul must have. had. Imagine if you, living here in Columbus, went away to another city, let's say to do some sort of church mission work or to spread the gospel, and you actually got arrested in that city. Let's say you went to Indianapolis and you were in jail in Indianapolis and you'd been there for a while. What a big encouragement it would be just to see a face, a, a, a familiar face from Columbus, wouldn't it? And not only just to fill in your face, but someone actually coming with encouragement and gifts. Okay, so I'm sure this was a huge, huge encouragement to Paul. And Paul shows the depth of his thankfulness, his joy in response to him in Philippians 1. So let's, let's look at briefly at the, that passage that Harvey preached in the first 11 verses of Philippians 1. Look at verse 3. In verse 3, Paul says he thanked God every time he remembered them in his prayers. Every time he thought about the Philippians, he thanked God. Verse seven, Paul says that he holds them in his heart for their concern for him. Okay, he was had this deep connection with them because he knew that they loved him. And in verse eight, Paul says he yearns, he yearns for all the Philippian believers with the affection of Christ. So this letter permeates with joy. I talked about it a couple of weeks ago. Some people think joy or rejoicing is the the theme of of. Um, Philippians because it appears so many times. I don't think it's necessarily the theme, but it's evidently a result of Paul's love and his, uh, his, his, his just deep thankfulness for what the Philippians had done from his encouragement. So this letter permeates with Paul's joy, and it's not necessarily because of the gifts and not necessarily because of the encouragement, but because he knew that those were evidences that Christ had actually made a change within them. And that's what Paul really rejoiced about. So as we come to our next group of verses for today, what I'm going to be preaching on, verses 12 through 18a, and by the way, you think, why do we bust up the verses like it? I don't know who invented the chapters and verse numbers, but whoever that guy is, it's his fault, okay? He broke up this verse in the wrong place, okay? So when you see somebody doing that, we're not trying to be fancy. We're just saying that's really where the thought ends, okay? So we're going to see after Paul finishes his joyful exuberance over the Philippians in the first 11 verses, we begin to see in these next verses I'm going to be talking about today, Paul specifically addressing the worries the Philippians had. Okay. So specific questions, worries they had about his well-being. And so in these verses, Paul's responding with encouragement okay, that the gospel is still advancing, not only regardless of his current predicament, but at least in part because of it. So I want us to be encouraged this morning from Philippians 1, 12 to 18a, that the gospel of Christ, the good news, the hope of our faith that's changed us, that this faith cannot be stopped. And I want us to see how this should encourage us in very practical ways. Okay? So first, I want us to see that we should be encouraged that evil purposes or bad circumstances cannot stop the gospel and often actually help to advance it, ironically. In verses 12 to 14... Paul encourages the Philippian believers by explaining that his imprisonment has actually served to advance the gospel, and primarily in two ways. First, in verses 12 and 13, Paul explains that due to his imprisonment, the gospel has become known throughout the whole imperial guard when he was in Rome, as well as to others. He says there in verse 12 and 13, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known through the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. Okay. So Paul assures the Philippians here that not only has his imprisonment not inhibited the advance of the gospel, it's actually served to advance it. As Paul puts it more poetically in another place and at another time he's imprisoned. Okay. In 2 Timothy 2.9, he says, I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal, but the word of God is not bound. Very similar situation that he finds himself here now. In other words, Paul was letting the Philippians know that even though he usually, he couldn't preach here and there, it was the usual one. He couldn't travel about and and share the gospel like he usually did and usually desired. He was still having plenty of opportunity to share the gospel with people he normally would never have had access to, namely the Imperial Roman Guard. These were not just any Roman guards. These were an elite force that were part of Caesar's own personal army. You just don't have access to these sort of uh, high-standing high officials. But Paul did. He had to be imprisoned with them to have that access, but he had that access, and he realized it for what it was. The reference in verse 13 to all the rest is probably just a reference to other Roman guards who weren't imperial. Okay. So he's saying, look, I'm, I'm having access to people I normally don't have access to. So these comments reflect Paul's attitude about, his, about the gospel. He always took advantage of every opportunity to share the gospel. The fact that he was in jail was not, in his, ideas, in his eyes, an obstacle to gospel. He saw it as an opportunity to share the gospel. And he took a full advantage of it by sharing with everyone he came in contact with. So though primarily for, this is for the Philippian believers, I think there's a practical point encouragement for us as well. To show us that the advance of the gospel cannot ultimately cannot ultimately be stopped even by something as powerful as a government regime. And history, both biblical and extra-biblical, shows time and time again that this is true. Um, That efforts to suppress or stop the gospel not only don't usually succeed, they almost always ironically helping to advance it. As Jesus says to the church in Matthew 16, 18, he says, the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And why? Is the church such a big thing? No, it has a big message. It has the gospel, which Romans sixteen tells us is the power of God. Okay. So there's many historical examples we're going to point, uh, point to prove this point. So let me give you just a few. For instance, we're familiar with the medieval culture known as the Norse Coast called the Vikings. Okay. You know, they probably didn't wear pointy hats with horns on them, but you know that's the sort of popular myth. You know, we probably get that more from the football team, I guess, than the actual history, okay? But these, this culture is actually a very brutal culture. They were this northern European culture that were coming down through the coast, uh, mainly through uh, what's now England and France, and they were just destroying all the villages and monasteries along the coast. They were very bloody, bloody people, okay? And they often took captives as slaves, and they often raided monasteries of all the jewels and, and gold crosses and things that are there, But along with these things that they would steal and and take and plunder were also copies of the Scripture. And some of the slaves that they were hauling off up to northern lands were Christians. Christians who were living their faith still in the midst of their conquering masters. So this is a bit of a historical oversimplification, but the Vikings were eventually Christianized. Northern, uh, Northern Norse culture was eventually Christianized. So their attacks against Christians, even though that wasn't primarily their goal, actually ended up ultimately serving to spread the cause of Christ because these Christians and these Christian writings they were plundering were coming back with them to their pagan lands. Another example, in seminary, um, I once heard a chapel speaker, I can't remember his name, but someone who was familiar with Chinese history, uh, mainly modern Chinese history, explained that when the communists took over China in 1949, they sought to eliminate Christianity as well as any other religion within their ranks because this was an obstacle to their uh, Marxist ideals. If you're familiar with Marx, he has the famous claim that religion is the opiate of the masses. So how did the Chinese authorities think they were going to do this? Well, they came up with this idea. They thought that since communism is strongly rooted in the idea of the, the group, not the individual, let's separate these groups of Christians. Let's, let's spread them out across the country. Let's disperse them. And At that time, our, our roughest estimates in 1949, there was probably around 7 million evangelical Christians in China. So the thought was that being without fellow believers to encourage each other, so it'd be like someone coming in here and breaking up our church and sending us all to different parts of the country. They thought, since they won't be able to be together in groups and encourage each other, this whole Christian thing will die away. Now, I think, the, I think you realize what happened, actually, okay? Actually, it always served to spread the gospel. We know that there's close to 58 million evangelical Christians in China today. Now, there's still persecution among Christians and other religious groups there. But spreading the people out just helped to spread the gospel. I remember that chapel speaker saying, he says, the communist Chinese government is probably the most successful missionary sitting agency ever. Okay. Inadvertently so. Another story. This is one I get from John Piper's book. I don't know how clear that comes up on the screen. His, his, he has a great little book on missions called Let the Nations Be Glad. I get this story from there. He says, thousands of Koreans fled what is now North Korea in the 1930s during the Japanese invasion. He says, many of these people settled around Vladivostok. When Stalin in the 1930s and 40s began developing Vladivostok as a weapons manufacturing center, he deemed the Koreans a security risk. So he relocated them to five areas around the Soviet Union. You're starting to see a pattern here. Okay. Um, one of those areas was Tashkent. Tashkent is the hub of a staunchly Muslim people called the Uzbeks. Twenty million strong, the Uzbeks had for hundreds of years violently resisted any sort of Western efforts to introduce Christianity. As the Koreans settled around Tashkent by Stalin's command, the Uzbeks welcomed their industry and kindness, and within a few decades, the Koreans were included in nearly every facet of Uzbek cultural life. As usual in God's orchestration of global events, he had planted within the relocated Koreans strong pockets of believers. Little did Stalin suspect that these Koreans would not only begin enjoying a wildfire revival among themselves, their own people, they would also start bringing the gospel to the Muslim, Uzbek, and Kazakh friends to Christ. The first public sign of Korean revival and its breakthrough effects on the Uzbeks and the Kazakhs, again, which were mainly in Muslim culture, came June 2nd, 1990, when the first open-air Christian meeting In the history of Soviet Central Asia, a young Korean from America preached to a swelling crowd in the streets of Alma-Ata, the capital of Kazakhstan. So these examples from history, and there's many, many more we could give, should encourage us. Attempts to eliminate or repress the gospel never ultimately succeed. And as these examples show, ironically, they often help to advance it. As Job 42.2 says, I know you, God, can do all things, that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. And Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, a verse I'll talk a little bit later about, reminds us that seeing something that seems meant evil for, something that seemed to be meant for evil by people can be used by God to be meant for good. So our God is all-powerful. He's good. His purposes will prevail regardless of what the world or what our lives do. Though we should pray for persecuted believers and we should pray for each other when we're suffering, all over the world, we should not lose heart that the gospel, the power of God, is somehow losing ground. It may be losing cultural influence. It may be losing political votes. But it's not losing power. It's still changing the hearts and lives of people. So this brings us to a second point of encouragement that Paul gives. In verse 14... Uh, Paul explains that not in spite of his imprisonment, but due to his imprisonment, fellow believers had become emboldened to share and preach the gospel more. So look what he says in verse 14. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. So Paul seeks here to encourage the Philippian believers that his imprisonment, again, it's not an obstacle to the gospel, but it's actually served to advance it, and in this way, by emboldening other believers to share the gospel without fear. Now, actually, when I was preparing for this, I found this to be the most difficult part of this passage. And the reason why is that initially this sounds strange to me. Strange to me. Okay. So if I'm somewhere, let's say just Columbus, and somebody in our church is sharing the gospel, and they get arrested, my first thought is like, okay, back up. I don't want to get arrested too. Or if I hear somebody being persecuted because for living for Christ in some way, it immediately makes me think, well, that's going to cause us to back up. We're going to get scared. How does the suffering of a fellow Christian or Christians somehow help to embolden other Christians to share the gospel? Because it seems to me that that's even usually the point behind the persecution, right? So whatever the persecution is, imprisonment, uh, killing people, taking away government privileges, whatever it is, okay, it seems to me the, the tactics something like this. Hey, these religious people, they'll, they'll quit being so religious and so zealous about this Jesus business, and then they'll go back to just being good old whatever, and so we'll quit persecuting him, and, and this will be what we want but yet, it seems lots of times, the opposite happens. When persecution happens, it seems to embolden Christians to share their faith more. Okay? Now, why is that? Well, here's the best answer I can see. Okay? And I'm going to refer to a small parable that Jesus gives in Matthew. In Matthew 13, 44, Jesus gives this parable. He says, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his, in his joy, he goes and he sells all that he has, and he buys that field. That's, that's the whole parable. Okay, so the picture is here. This is a guy. He's digging out in someone else's field, we don't know why he's digging out in someone's field, but whatever. He's, a, he's on someone else's land, and he's digging, and he finds something really precious. Maybe he finds a big ore of gold. Maybe oil starts popping out of it. We don't, There's something really precious on this land, which he doesn't own. But because that stuff's so precious, he says, I'm going to go and sell everything I have in order to buy that land. So what's on the land's now going to be mine. It's, it's, that, it's that precious. It's that great. Okay. Now what does that have to do with the kingdom of heaven? I think kingdom of heaven here, uh, the way it's being used, is referring specifically to the gospel of Christ and thus Christ himself. I'm not going to take the time to, to, uh, to uh, detail it out, but something like the following. I think since heaven is only available to the sinner who repents, in Christ, uh, as the gospel requires, therefore the kingdom of heaven is only available in Christ and the gospel. That's the short. So Jesus here is attempting to show, it seems to me, that he and his gospel are like a treasure that's more valuable than anything else, since the man in the parable is willing to give up everything in order to get it. And here's why I'm bringing up this verse in connection with Philippians. Here's the connection I see. So the point of this passage, this Matthew passage, is something like the following. The extent of someone's sacrifice for something or someone, I believe, shows that a person value how much that person values that thing or person. The extent, the willingness someone's willing to give up, what price they're willing to pay for something or some person, shows just how valuable that thing or person is. So Jesus actually brings up something similar in John 15, 13. He says, Greater love has no one than this, than that someone laid down his life for his friends. In other words, a person shows just how valuable this friend is by willing to give up his life. What greater thing could he give to show this friend is that important? That's the idea. Now, here's how I think that point applies back to the Philippian passage. Okay. So my question again was this, something like the following. How does the persecution of a believer believer somehow embolden rather than discourage other believers to share the gospel? So, So I'm going to write out this big academic paragraph. You don't have to read it if you want to, but I'm going to say it. When we see loss and suffering joyfully accepted for the sake of Christ or his gospel, we see that Christ is really worth losing everything for and worth suffering for, And this often motivates people to be willing to lose and suffer for Christ as well. When we see loss and suffering joyfully accepted for the sake of Christ or his gospel, we see that. We see that Christ is really worth suffering, uh, really worth losing everything for and worth suffering for. And this, I take it those those examples we see, is what motivates people to be willing to lose and suffer for Christ. It's not enough to... Memorize that statement and actually even affirm it. I believe that's true. That statement alone isn't what motivates us to suffer for Christ. It's seeing people, real-life examples, willing to give everything for Christ. Um, I think this—I don't think this is an incredibly strange or deep truth, actually. I think it's something you can see in lots of other examples. So think about someone who wants to be a really good ball player. Let's take any sports—basketball. So you'll say you have a teenager who wants to be a really good basketball player. What motivates this kid? Has anybody here played sports in high school or college? Okay. What's the worst thing of playing sports? Training, right? Practice. <laughs> you know, I played football in high school. Loved football games. Football practice stunk. It was like the pain of my existence. I couldn't wait till it was over. What would motivate someone to go through this? I can tell you, for me, was, I was hoping to get girls. That was, that was my motivation back then. Okay. But what's the main motivation for someone who wants to be really good at a sport? Who wants to be a really good basketball player? Who wants to be a really good football player? Really good baseball player? Why are they willing to go through all that training and all that practice? And all? What do you think motivates them to do good? Well, I'm sure there's lots of things we could mention, but one thing I know motivates a lot of athletes are heroes. You know, almost everybody in my day and age, back in the 80s, had a poster of Michael Jordan, even if he didn't play basketball, okay? Because it was just amazing to see Michael Jordan play. Now, I'm not talking about how great of a person he is in real life. I don't know anything about that, okay? But as on, the, on the basketball court, he was amazing, okay? I don't really follow basketball now. I don't know who the big LeBron James, I guess, and some others, okay? But usually, those are the people, those, those are the things that motivate. A person wants to play basketball like LeBron James, person wants to play basketball like Michael Jordan. That's what motivates them. It's not the rules of the game. It's not the discipline of the game. It's not the history of the game. It's seeing somebody do it well. Think about like the Olympics. I don't you, but that's, that's the most patriotic I usually get is when I'm watching the Olympics, okay? When you see an American athlete do really well, it just inspires you to be American, okay? I don't know why, but it does, okay? Seeing examples spurs us on. When I was in high school and college, um, I played guitar for a little while, and um, and rock guitar was the big thing in the '80s. and and I could say, arpeggios and scales are that's just boring to do. You just do that over and over. Do different kinds of scales up and down the fretboard. You're like, why? Why would somebody do this? It's not because they're wanting to do arpeggios and scales. They want to play like Van Halen, you know? They just want to just rock out. They want to do all those fancy things you see these guitarists doing. That's what motivates a guitarist. It motivates any musician to see really good people who do it. So examples are huge, I think are just a huge emphasis for the goals for what we do. When I teach ethics uh, we talk a little about the motivation. When I teach ethics in college classes, secular college classes, we talk a little bit about the notion of motivation for ethics. And it's clear that one of the major motivations for being good, almost everybody cites, is their upbringing. This is, well, I don't know why I believe this, but my parents believe this. Uh, I was brought up in church, so we believe this. Okay? Examples are a huge influence on what motivate us to be and to do and the things we do. So I think it's clear that heroic examples often motivate people to action. So I don't think it should surprise us that when the Philippians saw Paul in his imprisonment, not just getting thrown in jail, not just being in prison, but the fact that he was still sharing the gospel, even though he'd been in prison for that very thing, that's what encouraged them. That's what encouraged them and emboldened them. They said, this guy, if he's willing to still share the gospel, Jesus must be really worth a lot. He must be worth going to jail for. Okay. And I know this is true because many missionaries, my wife is... I, I don't know this person. My wife tells me, she reads quite a few missionary biographies and gives me the highlights. But many missionaries will say that one of the motivations that caused them to go to the mission field was reading other missionary biographies, autobiographies. The life of David Brainer, has been a huge influence on many people. So it shouldn't surprise us that, seeing that these people seeing, Christ, uh, seeing Paul suffer for Christ motivated them as well. And it should encourage us as well. And it doesn't have, by the way, it doesn't have to be we, only when we see other Christians suffering for Christ that that motivates us. It can be something as simple as watching one of our fellow brothers or sister going something through really hard and still holding on to Christ. When you see somebody in our midst who's still clinging to Christ, when they've lost their job, when there's nothing going right, when they've lost it all, and we still see them clinging to Christ, that should encourage us. Okay? By the way, I think that's something the world is desperately in need of. Seeing people that hold tenaciously to something. And in this day and age where everybody changes their mind so quickly with polls, and with whatever the wind of change is, to see any group of people hang on tenaciously to something of permanence says that thing's of value. I think that's one of the reasons why Islam is growing leaps and bounds throughout the world. Say, you know, Islam is an anti-gospel. I don't think people are saved by it. But it's clear that those people believe it and they hold to it strongly. And that's what they need to see from us people who value our Christ and hold on tenaciously. It's what emboldens each other to follow Christ. So in this way, we should take encouragement from believers who are either heroically going through persecution or just going through the daily suffering of daily life living for Christ. Whether it be updates from the mission fields or just being involved with your local church. As we see Christ being magnified by others, showing that Christ is worth more than anything else, we also should be encouraged and emboldened for the cause of Christ. So from verses 12 and 14, we should be encouraged that evil purposes cannot stop the gospel and often advance it since such purposes, uh, such purposes can often provide opportunities for the gospel and also encouragement to um, embolden us to share the gospel. Second point, I want us to, be, I want us to see that uh, the fact that rivals, and I'll explain what I mean by rivals in a minute, can advance the gospel as well. We should be encouraged by the fact that rivals can uh, advance the gospel as well. In verses 15 to 18a, Paul encourages the Philippian believers that those who preach the gospel out of envy and rivalry are advancing the gospel. Referring back to the emboldened brothers in verse 14, he goes on to say in verses 15 to 18a the following. He says, some of these indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaimed Christ out of rivalry, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. So in these verses, Paul seems to be addressing some other concern the Philippians had. They evidently heard that there were some preachers who were causing Paul some sort of trouble, okay? Now, we don't exactly know the details of this situation. You know, what exactly were they doing? Who exactly were these people? How were they causing trouble? Uh, some of you even thought that these rival preachers are actually heretical false teachers. Because later he mentions this in chapter 3, verses 2 and following. He'll talk about some false teachers in the Philippian church. But I, don't, I think the context here makes clear that these rival preachers are not heretical false teachers. Okay? I think these are pre- actually Christian brothers, according to verse 14. And they're even actually preaching the gospel accurately, according to verse 18a. So how are they rivals to Paul? And if they're not heretical enemies... What exactly are they doing in thinking to afflict Paul? So what's going on here? So I think the best way we can try to be able to understand what's going on in these verses is try to walk through how the, he's actually comparing two different groups. Okay? So both groups are people who are preaching Christ in some way. So I'm going to call one group one. That'll be the bad group. And group two, the good group. Okay? So, uh, they, so they both have in common that they're preaching the gospel. Okay? But one group we're told in verse 15, they preach the gospel from envy and rivalry. They envied Paul in some way. They didn't see him as a fellow team member. They saw him as a competitor. Okay, exact, again, we don't know exactly how, but that's what the language implies. Verse 17 says that these guys did not preach sincerely, but thought to afflict Paul. Rather than being brothers who sincerely sought for Paul's well-being, they were in some way trying to hurt him, okay, probably by what they were saying. Since he was in, in imprisonment, there wasn't any way they could get to him to hurt him that way. So it was probably by what they were saying. So, even though these preachers were preaching the truth, okay, uh, they preached the gospel accurately. Verse 18 says that they, uh, whoops, uh, verse 18 says that they preached in pretense. They made something the case that was not, okay? So the things that they were saying about Christ were true, but evidently things that they were saying about Paul were not, okay? As the ancient bishop of Hippo, St. Augustine, said commenting on passage, he says, these men were evidently preaching the truth, but not in the truth. It says, Paul pro- tolerated, that they proclaimed the truth, but he didn't praise them. Okay. Now, it might be easier to figure out what these guys are up to by, by the, what they're being compared to. In comparison, Paul uh, mentions the second group. Okay? We're told in verse 15 that this group preached the gospel with goodwill. The word they translated goodwill can also be translated good pleasure. Okay? Those guys loved to preach the gospel, and they were filled with good intentions in doing so. Verse 16 says that they preached out of love with the knowledge that Paul's imprisonment was for the sake of the gospel. This probably means that they sought to defend Paul's imprisonment, that God was still with him, even though he was in prison, which implies, okay, again this is, this is an inferential leap, we don't know for sure, but this seems to imply maybe that these other group were saying something like the following, you know Paul's ministry is bad because he's in prison, because if he was really God's man, he wouldn't be in prison. Okay. But this group would say no, even though Paul's in prison, His ministry is still good. It's still Christ. Um, Verse 18a also says that this second group preached the truth in all things concerning not only the gospel, but also concerning Paul's situation. So the end picture we have is something like the following. There's this group of preachers, which I'm calling group one, uh, who were accurately preaching and teaching the gospel, but they were maligning Paul in some way. Now, the important point to all this is Paul's reaction in 18a. What's he say? What then? Or... My paraphrase version, so what? Okay. Is Paul being indifferent to the situation? No, I don't think so. In fact, he says he's rejoicing there. Do you see that word at the end of verse 18a? He's rejoicing of this situation. Because of their hypocrisy? No, because the gospel's still advancing. Don't misunderstand Paul here. These rival preachers are not being excused for their hypocrisy, whatever it was they were doing. Okay. As James says in James 3.1, those who teach will be judged more strictly. But noble actions cannot hide ignoble um, motives from the gaze of God. But Paul rejoiced that despite these unchristian-like motivations, Christ was still being preached, even if it was by brothers who were slandering him. Okay. Now, what's, what's the sort of analogy for us? Because I, I don't know of a perfect one. I don't know of anybody that's going around who we call our brothers, but they're saying, man, those North Point people are a bunch of jerks. I, I don't know of any example of that. Okay? But I think here's, here's, here's an analogous sort of point to take away. There are obviously other Christians and Christian churches that we may not see eye to eye with concerning certain doctrines, but yet nevertheless, these Christian churches and Christians accurately preach the gospel of Christ. Okay, And in this, we should rejoice. They may not believe all the things we believe, but nevertheless, if the gospel is being preached accurately in those churches, we should be excited and happy about that. Now, that doesn't mean that we should not Clearly uphold why we believe the certain distinctives that we have. Uh, Nor should we not point out why we disagree with other churches. Okay, but following Paul's example, we should rejoice that the gospel of Christ is being proclaimed, even when these churches may be mistaken in order to that in in mistaken other less essential doctrines. When I'm calling less essential doctrines here are doctrines that don't directly relate to the gospel. So let me give some example. We're our church is part of something here called the Gospel Coalition. Okay. There are other Baptist churches in that coalition, but there are also Presbyterian churches. Presbyterians baptize their infants. We don't do that. And I'm not going to go into our reasons why we don't believe that. But we think the Bible doesn't teach it. Is the gospel being violated when people uh, uh, baptize infants? Well, not the way the Presbyterians do it. So we are willing to say, look, we are willing to fellowship with you. We rejoice with you, Presbyterian churches, because we know you're preaching the gospel, even though we disagree with other issues. Um, uh, another good example, we uh, I know of a young lady who is a pastor of a church. Okay? I think the Bible's fairly clear about the role of women in ministry in those positions. Okay, Nevertheless, I know that this woman preaches the gospel, okay? and I rejoice that this woman is diehard about preaching the gospel, and we should rejoice about the gospel being taught in that place. Okay, um, we have differences even among our own, own church members over things like, you know, did the, is, is Jesus to come back? Is the rapture going to happen before or after? the What's it called? The tribulation, okay? Uh, I don't see whether you, what you believe about the issue has any relation to the gospel, okay? So we're not downplaying the idea that those doctrines aren't important, but we are saying that there's something of more central importance, and that's the gospel, okay? Now, when a group claims to be Christian and they differ on the gospel, okay? That is not a sister church and something that Paul wouldn't rejoice in and we shouldn't rejoice in. There's people that claim to preach the Bible, claim to preach Christ, but what they're giving is actually a false or pseudo-gospel. Paul's not talking about people like that. He's talking about people who are actually accurately preaching the gospel, but yet they differ. They may differ on some things. Paul's saying we should rejoice, and I think we should. We should be happy that the gospel is being preached, even if all the things that we believe about Scripture are not necessarily being held by those same churches. So we have to be careful here, okay? But I think there is an analogous, analogous uh, sort of application. And I think the fact that our church is part of the gospel coalition, that has Presbyterian churches, has charismatic churches, that the fact that we're, we're, we've grouped and uh, partnered together with churches like that, we recognize this different. That the gospel's central, and there's some doctrines that are not, not to say they're not important, but they're not as important as the gospel. So in verses 15 to 18a, I believe Paul wanted the Philippian believers to know that even though there are others in the Lord causing him trouble, they should still be a source of encouragement to them, because they were to him, since they were still accurately preaching the gospel of Christ. Now those are my two points concerning our verses today. However, I now want to conclude by stepping back a bit and suggesting there's a general overall point to all these verses that should encourage us. And here's my third general point. I believe that we should see suffering, bad circumstances, in a gospel light. I believe that we should see, I think this is sort of the background of everything Paul's been saying. That suffering and bad circumstances need to be seen in a sort of gospel light, and I'll explain what I mean by that, in order that we can have joy in the midst of suffering, the way Paul did. Here's this guy rejoicing like crazy, and he's in prison, being slandered. So I believe an overall point of these verses is that Paul is encouraging the Philippian believers to see suffering in a gospel light, in order that he may have joy in the midst of that suffering. In other words, I think Paul is coming from a general mindset of encouraging them to see how God could be using evil circumstances to good. I don't think Paul is giving some sort of post-defeat spin, saying, you know, I know it looks like a negative, but it's actually a positive. You've seen these before, like, so, like, after an election, the guy that lost will say, well, this isn't really a, a, a defeat. You know, it's just, you know, or they'll use like a football note. It's, it's not that we've lost yardage, we just punted or something like that. Or after a, after a defeat of a game, a coach will say something, I know this looks like a, a defeat, but actually, you know, we're just we're regrouping or something like this, you know. I don't think Paul's doing that here. I don't think Paul's saying, no, I know things look bad, but actually, let me give you a good spin on it. Now, I think Paul is not um, uh, trying to put a good picture on a bad thing. He's not denying that bad things are happening, Yes, he's in prison for an unjust reason. Yes, there are those unjustly causing him harm by defaming him. Nevertheless, Paul saw a deeper reality at work in these bad circumstances, a deeper reality that couldn't be subverted by a government regime or even by slanderous tongues. So earlier I had mentioned Genesis 50 verse 20. I believe that's a very key passage in explaining the sort of perspective that Paul has here with the Philippians. Philippians. So starting, if you uh, you know, uh, Lee's been preaching through the book of Genesis. What are we up to? Chapter 20? 20, right 20, 20 now, it's been a while, right? Okay, we're we're about halfway through Genesis, I think, in uh, Lee's preaching. But starting in Genesis 37 and through the rest of the book, the, uh, the 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 book of Genesis focuses upon one life, mainly the life of this guy named Joseph, okay, who's one of the twelve sons of Israel. So if you know the basic biblical story, I'm going to just say here as a review, but this is how basically the story goes in the next last 13 chapters of Genesis. So the biblical history accounts that Joseph was unjustly sold into slavery by his brothers. Um, The next several years were disappointment upon disappointment as as Joseph is unjustly accused by Potiphar's wife. And then he's unjustly forgotten in prison by the chief cupbearer to Pharaoh of Egypt. But as you know, after years of frustration, Joseph's eventually brought up by God to be head over all Egypt, second only to Pharaoh himself, where God uses Joseph to wisely provide for all the people in the midst of a great famine. Now, eventually his brothers, the ones that who unjustly sold him into slavery and had lied to their parents that he'd been killed, they come to Joseph, not knowing it's him trying to buy grain. When he reveals who he is, the brothers are greatly in fear that he will now take revenge for their evil actions against him years before. And if he had, who would have blamed him? Can you think of a rougher life, I mean, before he became bigwig in Egypt, but his life up to that point is just, is just like a soap opera. It's just misery. Okay? So you could, you could see him, him taking out his frustration on his brothers and nobody blaming him. But Joseph reveals that he viewed all the evil circumstances that he had gone through through a light, through a lens of God's deeper purposes. He famously and insightfully says in Genesis 50 verse 20, he says, As for you, my brothers, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. This perspective is what I'm calling a gospel perspective, a gospel perspective on bad circumstances, seeing evil not as obstacles to God's good purposes, but as opportunities for God's good purposes to advance. Now, I have to be careful here. This is not the message you always want to bring up to someone who's going through evil circumstances. It's, but it is the sort of perspective that you should be getting on your head now before evil circumstances come along. Okay? So let me clarify what I just said. This is maybe not the best thing to say to someone who's actually going through something bad at the time, but it's the sort of thing you should be teaching yourself and rehearsing your mind before bad circumstances come. You'll be better prepared for them. <clears throat> So my point is, if we have this sort of perspective, we should rejoice knowing that God is actively bringing about, in some mysterious way, his good purposes. There's nothing wrong with praying for God to end our suffering or our hurt. There's plenty of biblical passages. The Psalms are full of encouragement for us to cast all our cares and anxieties upon God. When we hurt, when we're going through bad stuff, asking God, please take this away. And the scripture is doubly clear that when our fellow brothers and sisters and others are hurting, that we're there to try to hurt them and to alleviate that pain and suffering. I'm not giving a case or or a sort of picture here. We should do just that. We should seek to end suffering. We should seek to end pain. And when we're going through it, we should ask God to take it from us. But the point I'm trying to make here, and the point I think is behind Paul's thoughts in Philippians 1, 12 to 18a is that in light of bad circumstances, especially circumstances that we can't do anything about, we should take hope that God is still at work in the midst of it. So let me conclude. We should take heart that the gospel, the good news, that very news that changed your life and my life, you know, if you're a Christian, we should take heart that this gospel can't be stopped. No political or cultural forces, no matter how powerful or popular, can stop God's good purposes in Christ. Can there be setbacks? Of course. Can there be defeats? Yes. Can there ultimately be a defeat? No. No matter what evil you and I may be experiencing now or in the future, God is good, and he's actually bringing about good for his glory and for our good. Let's pray.